Hi guys. Okay. The Vast of Night. I couldn't find out if I was on Twitch because I was checking because it had to show me a commercial because I'm not a Twitch member. So I still see the commercials. So apparently there's some movie called The Vast of Night. Will said it wasn't very good. But I'll probably see it at some point. Anything with uh Anything that's coming out new to streaming that has anything close to uh, Hollywood production values, I am just absolutely catnip for at this point. Just anything. That's why I know that Christopher Nolan is dying to get Tenet, Tenet in theaters and have everybody see it on, you know, a fucking IMAX with 40 glasses or whatever the fuck. But if they just put that shit on uh, Amazon, like your computer for 20 bucks, it would make a billion dollars in one day. Uh, yeah, it's, that's the thing. I love going to the movies, but I can't see it happening anytime soon. <clears throat> but I might see Tenet. I don't know. If they do bring that out in theaters, maybe I will go. Fuck it. Wear the mask, whatever. Do the social distancing in theaters. Although, honestly, I don't know how viable any of these th concepts are. You're literally, like, by limiting entry into places like restaurants and movie theaters, you're limiting revenue. In an environment in which they're still having to pay uh, price uh, rent and pay overhead that were fact did not factor in that level of revenue limitation. Ah, uh, all right. So let's talk about the fireworks thing for a minute. Uh, so yeah, I've obviously heard a lot of fireworks this last couple of weeks. I saw somebody lighting off pretty impressive ones just in front of me uh, on the street a few nights ago. It hasn't been too intense late at night in my neighborhood, so I don't know. Uh, what others experience are, but and I haven't seen cops set them off or anything. I saw some neighborhood people setting them off one time, but who knows where they got them. Uh, I, th I mean, obviously there's like a whole range of conspiracy theories, right? There's a whole bunch of different you got, you can go from just you know, uh, cops are looking the other way while people are selling them more out than they used to and they're not responding to calls so people can light them off longer to the cops are literally supplying them and carrying it out as some sort of, uh, some sort of 4th of July Gladio type operation. I think as usually is the case, bearing in mind I have no idea, I don't have any more information than any of you people have, so probably in the middle somewhere. I mean, the cops have are definitely allowing it to happen and before uh, in, in pre any previous time that they would not have been allowed to have that many fucking uh, that long of a, of a fireworks throw without a cop showing up so minimally the cops have decided to show their uh, show their worth to the to the city by not picking by not uh, breaking up fireworks displays and a lot of people say, well, that doesn't figure into how many there are or how big and expensive they are. How, who could afford them and, and things like that. Uh, and how are they getting them all when that doesn't happen every year? Well, I mean, there, if you, you, could, you could get a little Freakonomics on it uh, and say, well, because the cops aren't... Because, like, say X number of people in a given year are going to buy fireworks illegally to off, set off in the city, and there's always some but they're limited by the fact that they know they're never going to be able to light more than one or two at a time. So there's no point to buying that many, so the demand is relatively static and low. Now, 
with the cops essentially giving a, uh, a tacit green light to that you can go hog wild, you can empty out your barrel, uh, then maybe you want to buy more of them. And then that increases demand as, 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 as it's worth more to bring more in. Um, and in that case, all it takes is the, the cops just turning a blind eye and all of a sudden, boom, it's fireworks time. Thanks to the fact that it's the beginning of summer, people have been cooped up for months, uh, there's nothing else still open. That's like the least invention, intervention scenario. The most intervention scenario, as we said, is like, yeah, the cops are the ones actually doing it. Uh, intentionally, as psychological warfare. Uh, and as I said, I don't know that I don't know which one is which, but I will say that uh, the question I, and, the, and, and uh, the reason it's hard for me to care too much one way or the other, besides the fact that it seems like I, there's no way for me to know, uh, is what are you going to do about it if it is? What if it is a conspiracy? What if the cops are doing about it? Doing it? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And the real answer is no. Well, no. You're going to go online and you're going to say the cops are doing this. It's like, okay, does that change the fact that it's happening every night? Does it change the fact that, uh, that it's freaking you out a little bit, making you wonder, making you doubt yourself, making you doubt your cause, because you live in a city and you don't want fireworks going off in your windows? And maybe that means the cops should be around, because if they're not, I don't know if I can really live in this city anymore, and I sure do like it. And that anxiety has to be like put away, and that it's put away in 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 arguing that it has to be some sort of conspiracy theory, because that you way sublimates your anxiety. It sublimates the the very fact that like there is a there is an absolute tenuousness to everyone's belief system, right? Like people think, oh, we need to get everyone to believe X, Y, or Z, uh, and then we could win. Uh, no. You need people to have a depth of belief. Their belief has to be thick. Their belief has to be, have the thickness to when it encounters resistance and, and there has to be a sacrifice of personal gain or comfort in order to advance it, you have to be willing to push through. Well, I, I'd say that a lot of the people who have political beliefs right now and, uh, and, and, and to the point that they even carry them around as like a signal part of their identity and their sense of virtue they've never really been tested they've, and, and, and in the sense that they've never had to put like weigh their political beliefs against something else that they really wanted and like there's this giddy rush of look at what we're getting in the streets but a lot of the people in the streets their commitment to this cause, whatever you, they even imagine it to be, and not everybody is imagining it's the same thing, uh, is essentially free for them. Going out when you were quarantined is actually all positive. You get to go for exercise. You get to feel like you're a good person. You get to be outdoors without feeling guilty about being outdoors, which is what stops you from going out and doing other stuff. Um, it's all win. But... What if the fireworks don't stop, you know? And the cops make it clear that if they're not around to stop them, they're not going to stop. And all of a sudden, maybe we need cops around. Maybe police are useful. And it's like, that's the point when abolish the police becomes privatize the police. You know? That's the point where defund the police means some cosmetic uh, uh, trimming of the budget. And then people, people who would have said, I'll never settle for that in a million years, they've, they're settling for it. Why? because their beliefs have been tested a little bit and it turns out that their maximalist commitments didn't actually uh, account for having to be sacrificed for. Uh, 
And I think that the whole fireworks thing is part of an anxiety attack about that very fear that a lot of people have, like what's going to happen. And it's, and it's a real one. And the fact is we don't know what we're doing and no one knows what they're doing. And that leads everyone, of course, to start creating narratives to justify everything and to, uh, to soothe all this quiet. But a long way of saying I have no idea what's happening with the fireworks. Uh, but it's certainly having whatever its desired effect is. Or we'll see, I guess, right? We will see, we shall see, uh, how effective it is. And it's how people react to it. And that's, again, I don't know. But I think a lot of the anxiety comes around uh, the, 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 un, the buried and un, never spoken of, but, but undeniable fact that whatever we want to call the left in America has no organizational being, right? It, it, there's no umbrella organizations, there's no real leaders even. Certainly not leaders who have any influence beyond their ability to persuade as opposed to give orders to a hierarchy of command. And absent that, I mean, my hope is, and the only hope we have is, that conditions will bring those organizations and that coordination into being. Uh, but we're at the stage now where it hasn't happened yet, and there's a lot of anxiety around that. Because uh, people are like, what's going to happen? And more importantly, how do I know what anyone else is going to do when it happens? How can I be comfortable, how can I be confident that whoever was with me at that last march or wherever the hell or whoever faves me on Twitter is going to be there when it comes to the showdown? And the thing is, without a, without a hierarchy, without people you know in organizations that reach out branchingly to each other to know we're going to be here and know who we are, there's no way of feeling that way. And that... And that's why you have like this very weird uh, and pointless con argument, this invested this investment in this argument about, uh, uh, like for example, is rioting or looting good or bad, right? And it's entirely framed by everyone who argues about it as an individual choice. Like, should I individually choose the person who is? Uh, uh, should I individually judge the person who is um, looting? Should I think that they're doing a bad thing? Should I think that they're a good or bad person? And that's the only that's the only plane of argument. And when Nathan Robinson wrote that article about uh, how the guy getting canned for linking to a uh, piece of research about uh, saying that uh, riots in the 60s increased support for Republican positions, and he said that's good because that was bad research. And it's bad research because it assumes that it's the rioters' fault if people don't like riots, and it's not the systems that create them. And that is a completely beside the point, because there's an empirical question that has nothing to do with the individual virtue of the person who does something about its effectiveness. And the thing about that question is that's unanswerable because there is no coordination. There's no mechanism to if you know it's good or bad, do anything about it. All you can do is blame or, uh, or justify the people who do. And so a question of are riots helpful becomes the only thing that matters is the question of its uh, virtue. And, like, and, and, and because you're not considering the, the, the racism that created it, you, and con you're condemning the people who did it. No. 
there's a second question. They can all, everyone who riots, everyone who loots, can be doing it uh, in what I would imagine a virtuous manner. And I, could believe, I believe that. I don't have any moral objections to looting. But it could still be, in an objective sense, it could still be counterproductive. I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying it could be, and it's a separate question. But it's, we don't even think of it. It doesn't even come to our minds because it's beside the point, because even if it was, we couldn't stop it anyway. Or make it happen if it was good, because there's no mechanisms for ordering anyone to do anything. There's no organization. And that is the terror at the heart of all of this that no one can confront. And all of this stuff, all this like weird moralizing uh, um, uh, conversation and argumentation and, and conspiracy theory shit, it's all dancing around the hole in the center, which is the lack of any direction. I don't think anything happened to Nathan Robinson. I honestly feel like he caught he 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 tripped early to a a little hole in the Death Star of internet com, uh, internet conversation discourse, which is that if you write a lot of words, it is highly unlikely that every any everyone will re or even most people will read them all, right? Because nobody reads anything that they click to on the internet, especially if it's long. Uh, they will probably read a little bit of it. And then what they will do is they will take from it not even your argument, but the fact that you sure did put a lot of work into it. And that's a hell of a lot more than anyone else on uh, the internet can say because they're all just doing two-character reply tweets and emojis and shit. Anybody who can write anything more than like 10,000 words in this moment of like ultra-fried uh, uh, um, attention spans is basically uh, uh, like fucking Mozart and Einstein had a baby. It's like sitting down and writing something that long, I couldn't read that. And they don't. And so, if you can write a lot of words and make them like coherent enough that they don't just notice that the last, uh, the last, you know, 50 are like Lord Ipsum, as long as it has internal consistency, like it, 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 it reaches, um, it passes the test of like the Chomskyite uh, universal grammar, you know? People think you're a fucking serious, serious intellectual guy. And it worked. I mean, and he also had the costume, he had the performance, he had the accent. He, he, he really, he, he armored himself with every shibboleth of uh, sophistication that we as, like, downwardly culturally uh, uh, mobile, uh, ha uh, uh, wildly Philistine Americans hate in each other, like, as friends, but still have, like, a, like a, a, a terrified, awed uh, respect for because we feel the lack of culture within Americans. Uh, uh, are people really... They don't like my hat anymore? God, you people are so fucking fickle. Jesus Christ. Alright, I'll take the hat off. Now, how are you feeling about this? How's that? Huh? A little guy? A little belt? Gentleman there? Why don't I just create an organization? I know. I really should. Problem is, any organization that's going to be an effective uh, basis for mobilizing in this country is going to be around the workplace. And I, sadly, am about as disconnected from uh, the working class as you can be. 
like in the sense that I am not even of that class. Not a capitalist, as I've said, an artisan, a pre-modern artisan. But what it means is I don't really have a lot of organic connections. I gotta say, it's, 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 it's nice. I need a Fez. I have one. I have a Fez. I think it's at our office. It's pretty baller. It's, uh, it's like from the Syriac Lodge of the Shriners. I love that the Shriners are just these cute guys who ride around in little motorcycles and dedicate uh, wings to children's hospitals. They're the public, they're the, they're the charity arm of the Freemasons. You people are aware of that, right? So they're doing high-level Moloch worship while riding, and then riding around in little cars and wearing little fezes. Ah, here's the yeah the hippos here. Hi guys, little hippo buddy. Let's get busy. I didn't wear a fe I did wear a fez on an election live stream. Yeah, they're good hats. They're nice. Masonry is mostly charitable work. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on what you consider charity. Uh. Actually, uh, ex because executing John F. Kennedy in the ritual of the killing of the king, uh, a reenactment of a 33rd degree Masonic uh, mystic uh, ritual, we actually prevented the earth from being swallowed by a giant uh, space succubus. So it was technically charity when we killed him. Lodge 49 Pilled, I am. I don't know if I've recommended that show on here yet, but Lodge 49, uh, it's actually really good. It's, it is on it, it was on AMC, and it, it, and then so it's got like the, uh, the prestige of utterances, but it is defiantly not a prestige show in the ways that count, and that's why it got canceled after two seasons, but it's really good, and it, uh, it vibes with like everything I've been saying to kind of uncanny degree. And the guy, uh, the, 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 the guy whose books are the inspiration for the book, uh, uh, his name is, I think, Jay Garvin. Uh, or he, he wrote a, a really good book of short stories that I just finished called Middleman that is really, really fantastic. And uh, the show is really good, too. I really wish they got one more season. It's, it ends nicely, and it ends, it's okay as, as, a, as it is, but I really wish it got one more season. Jim Gavin, that's it. <coughs> if I could get one historical figure on the podcast, who would it be? That's a very interesting question. Hmm. See, the problem with historical figures is you get if they're too far back, you bring them up to your moment, and you can't ask them a question because they're screaming and stare and yelling at the computer and asking what, what this demon-haunted contraption is. You know, they can't have too much culture shock and time shock, or they're not going to be able to even tell you anything even remotely helpful. They're going to spend most of the time just being amazed that cars exist.
but yeah, like somebody from it would have to be like mid mid twentieth century at the latest if you wanted them to be helpful, if you wanted them to have any insight, as opposed to just wanted to laugh at like Shakespeare just crying and staring at a Zoom microphone. Uh, somebody asked about Infinite Jest and about what uh, what Wallace gets right or wrong about the nature of entertainment. Uh, I would say that he gets uh, he understands that entertainment exists as a way to uh, deal with loneliness. Uh, and I think that that is a, a central penetrating insight. And it's why his book, which was written in the mid-90s, is the one one is one piece of uh, of, of 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 contemporary fiction that feels incredibly incredibly prescient and and of the moment because he saw that technology was going to give take our ability to entertain ourselves our our ability to to assuage loneliness to a unprecedented degree and that's where we are now like everything in there, the the, the 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 mind obliterating force of the entertainment has already consumed us. Uh, like the number of people who, including myself, have allowed their lives to be derailed significantly by the pursuit of uh, entertainment. Uh, the only thing that I guess he didn't necessarily anticipate was that it uh, because it's shallow and because it is a over time, it loses its potency, and you need more of it, that it would become more interactive, you know? Uh, because it's not just like everyone's watching TV that has destroyed our ability to connect to one another or function, uh, or movies, it's because we're on the computer. And, and that has a, that has a, uh, that takes it to another level. And that it is, because, uh, Entertainment, like TV movies, it assuages loneliness by giving us a simulation of people around us for the time we're watching it. A simulated social reality that we can be a part of. But it is flat. And so the effect over time loses its potency. What the internet does is it gives you an even more richly textured and more immersive sense of social reality. But like anything else, because it's a simulation, it loses power over time. And that's the thing that has to be remembered above all. And that's why you have to spend more time on it, and you have to give more emotional investment to the time you spend on it. To make up for the fact that the mere act of being on the computer and engaging in those simulated social realities loses its ability to assuage the real human need for them. Stationary bicycle for the mind. That's pretty good, except when you're on a stationary bike, you're actually getting exercise. All right, I'm being recommended the book The Man Without Qualities, which I've heard of but never read. Uh, I will check it out.
Do I know anything about Charles Harrelson? You mean Charles V. Harrelson, Woody Harrelson's dad? The guy who was in prison uh, on death row, I think, for, ex for uh, the contract murder of a federal judge and is widely, by some anyway, considered to be a prime suspect in the Kennedy assassination. I mean, I assume that's who you mean. I would love, I would love to uh, rip a few bong, bong tokes with Woody Harrelson and talk about his dad, but that probably isn't a good vibe for him. He probably brings up uh, bad feelings, but I gotta say, if it was my dad, I would be, like, way into it. I, how could you not be? How could you not, like, people get, like, people get hung up on their genealogy if they just come from a bunch of dumb potato humpers in Ireland who never did anything interesting. If my fucking father might have killed Kennedy, I would really want to investigate the hell out of it. But maybe he does and keeps it quiet. And if, if so, then respect to him on that. I don't think there are more humans under Antarctica. That's ridiculous. Oh, he says his, apparently his dad and him were on good terms. Did he ever ask his dad if he killed Kennedy, though? Because if they were on good terms, and you know, like he was going to die in jail anyway, you'd think maybe he would have asked. He would have answered, you know? Uh, I do not think Trump likes being president anymore. I think Trump's entire life, because he's fleeing from himself, he's fleeing from his, uh, his wounded heart that has never healed, uh, that he has been flitting from thing to thing in his life that he thinks he's even admitted this in, in interviews his favorite song is is that all there is because he does a thing and it's wonderful and then he asks himself is that all there is and then he moves on to the next thing and everyone who says why did he run for president he could have just had him he could have had his mistresses and he could have had his, uh, his, his his TV show and everything it's like yeah he was fucking miserable he's been miserable every moment of his life he is, he is in, in more pain, psychic pain, than, than I could imagine. Every moment of his life is just a brutal nightmare of misery. He is, his center is nothing but self-loathing and anxiety. He ran for president, I mean, partially to screw Obama for saying he was an idiot, but also to, to, as something else to do. And for a while, it made him feel better, seeing all those crowds, all those rubes hooting and hollering at him, and then beating Hillary. He was scared because he wasn't ready for it, but at the same time, haha, everyone said he couldn't do it. They said it was impossible. They said, I couldn't do it, and then I won. Folks, they'd never seen anything like it. They saw huge blowout. It was a landslide. He loved it. He loved it. But it all it's all evanescence. All his vanity, it all falls through your fucking uh, hands like sand. And now he's left at the end of it. And now, because he can't do his rallies anymore, and the one he did wasn't even that well attended and was obviously poorly attended. And and uh, he got, probably was happy for about five minutes, and then he wasn't anymore. There was a picture taken of him coming off the uh, Marine One back to the White House uh, that is the best photograph of Donald Trump I have ever seen. Uh, he's got his... Uh, his got his tie undone uh he's got his hat his maga hat crumpled in one hand he's just kind of like a got this sort of like dazed stare looks as shitty as possible best of all there's a fucking ring of makeup orange makeup on the inside of his collar the cheeto dust as it were it's a fantastic picture so yeah so not being president maybe that will make him happy being president didn't work 
maybe not being president will work. So I really don't. I, I don't think he's gonna. He, I don't think he's going to. And he couldn't admit to himself that that's true. And I don't think that he's gonna like throw it or anything. But I do think that there will be beneath everything else relief. If if he if and I think is more likely when he loses because. I gotta say, guys, I know everyone's like, don't count out old Donnie. Everyone's been traumatized by him owning everybody for three years, but at some point, reality intervenes, you know? And I, he's, he is really in fucking trouble. Unless he decides to, in the very late, late period, right before the election, to be Donnie, uh, Donnie Moneybags, to do the helicopter drop that they have not done so far, even though it would have really helped his approval. Unless they do some late late inning huge injection of money into the economy, he cannot win. Like as in there's no path. Like there's zero chance. Twenty percent unemployment, he's not gonna win any of those um, midwestern states. He's not gonna win Michigan, he's not gonna win Pennsylvania, he's not gonna win Wisconsin. It's not going to happen. Because that swing were people who were like, let's try him out and see what happens. They have, and we see it in the results from uh, from congressional races in the interim. They have decided it didn't work out too well, and there's nobody else. Like his base there is, it's the same people as ever, but it's it's not enough. It was never enough. His base was never enough to win. It was his base plus people who were disinterested enough to not vote, uh, who were generally Democrats, uh, or to if they were generally Democrats, switch to a Republican, and that was all a function of Hillary. And Hillary being such a uniquely unlikely character, such a perfect avatar for uh, what people thought of as their immiseration. Whereas now, like, Biden, to the degree to which he represents anything, is uh, a period, the Obama years, which seem even for, I think, non-Democrats to be a period of relative calm and competence that they would like to return to. And there's nothing Trump can do to change that except giving everybody money uh, because he personalizes every issue about himself, which means the big fear people have that, oh, all the riots are going to turn people into uh, reactionaries. No, they're associated with Trump. Like, even if they're not, even if they're not woke, even if they don't believe all the stuff about prison abolition and, 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 uh, and uh, abolishing the police that your Twitter feed does, they still are like, Trump is making this worse. Trump makes it worse. And Biden, because like the idea that he's going to be Mr. Antifa, that can't stick. He's a 90-year-old white dude, and he's explicitly disavowed all the Antifa stuff. Um, so he can't get ahead of any issue because he's the face of every issue, and every issue is bad. The question of whether... Now, if Trump, if Trump was facing Biden, and Corona had not hit, and a recession hadn't happened which honestly is a big if because it looks like the recession might have actually technically started before Corona hit, uh, then I think he would have a better... An, he, he might lose, but I would make him the favorite at this point, and I bet the polls would probably reflect that. Uh, but you, he's getting his ass dominated in a way that Hillary never did. Not even close. Right now, if the polls, if the poll, if the polls within a one percent margin of error, if all those states that right now have him with, with Biden within like a mar, outside the margin of error have have a lead outside the margin of error, if those hold, he he he, he romps. He wins every state Obama won in 20, 20, 2008. 
at least. And the, the, the fundamentals are going to only get worse. More people dead from corona, and now we recognize, like, all those people who didn't show up to the rally in Tulsa, even if they weren't scared away by Antifa, they probably do believe that the virus is real. And honestly, the degree to which people believe the virus is a real threat is the degree to which they have to recognize his, his responsibility for a lot of the reason we fucked the dog so badly. So yeah, I would say that uh, barring a significant intervention, an October surprise to end all October surprises, I think that he's cooked. See, somebody says, remember when Paul said Hillary was going to crush him? She never led, like, she never led him in aggregate. You can put point to a few outlier polls if you want. She never led him in aggregate from this far out the way that Biden is. And she still, let's not forget this, she won the popular vote by a significant margin and only lost in the three states she couldn't lose by a combined 70,000 votes. So that's like literally a coin flip, basically, in terms of outcome. So it's not like he beat Hillary running away with it. He barely went won and basically a fluke. Which is another thing people forget. Because it is funny to imagine talk about how she got her ass kicked. But uh, I'm not talking about general I'm not talking about national elections anyway. I'm talking about state polls. And yeah, yeah, like there were some national polls that had Hillary up by like ten or twelve or whatever, but state polling is pretty consistent. Now, the whole thing with the fucking mail-in ballots, that's going to be a huge, huge contention point, and that's why I can say now, no matter what, the other side, whoever it is, is not going to accept the outcome of this election. The question is, what formations will exist to channel that feeling into actual resistance? I mean, we're in a crisis of political legitimacy, and have been since 2000, pretty much. Uh, you could argue maybe since the Clinton, uh, Clinton impeachment, I don't know, maybe Bork, who knows. But anyway, we've been in a long-term, slow crisis of legitimacy that is now reaching uh, unsustainable uh, 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 speed. That means that every election now is going to ratchet it up, and probably significantly more than previously. And I think this election is going to be a ratchet point of, of just generalized res, uh, rejection of, of the authority that that has emerged from the proper channels but I would say this I think that's actually good news for the left and one of the few bright spots we have because I've been thinking about electoralism lately and the big argument against doing electoral politics from your uh, your anarchists your tankies whatever have you whatever you want any of your anti-electoral leftists is that you can't change the system from within they won't let you it exists to perpetuate capitalism. They're not going to allow you to just take it over. And the thing is, that's basically correct, yeah. I don't think anyone at the, at the level of, like, detail thinks that that wouldn't happen. Uh, the problem is, in America, just saying that doesn't change the fact that the vast majority of Americans who have political identities don't agree with that or aren't radical enough for that to care because the degree to which they want to change things can be accommodated in their mind by elections because they're not as radical as you and they never will be because you cannot do it through persuasion 
and that is the fantasy that the 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 the, the newspaper handing out leftists used to uh, used to satisfy themselves with, and now that they're online, they can delude themselves even more. No, with the click of a finger, I can meme. I can meme on thousands of people. Yeah, you can meme on thousands of people. They're just going to see it as some more bullshit on the internet. It has no impact. None of this stuff impacts, or very little of it anyway. What causes impact is things like the person being in a, in a position materially to be accommodating to those messages. I'm talk of course, and I'm only talking about the half of people who do vote. The, 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 the assumption that the other half who don't are all politically engaged, though, I don't agree with. I think they have made a, a ideological decision that voting doesn't apply to them. But I think they extend that to politics in general. If you disagree, you can, but I, I, it doesn't seem to me to track, frankly. Um, so most people, though, they're like, oh, yeah, no, they won't allow a revolution through elections, but I don't really care about a revolution. I would like to be at healthcare or something. And the task for the non-electoralists is to get that person on board with revolution, right? To get them past that point of just wanting a little bit of crumbs from master's table and wanting the whole thing. What do you do? Well, the non-electoral strategy is to just yell at them until they change their mind. I mean, if, I don't know what else. If there's others to it, something tell me. But that is the argument. It's like, well, you post. You post and remind people that they're wrong, and eventually enough of them will see that, and they'll agree with you. Uh, I mean, you can try that, but it's like trying to empty a fucking bucket. Uh, it's trying to empty a... It's, it's trying to bail out your boat with a straw. It's just... It's not, it's not cost or time effective. Now, what you need before you can realistically uh, uh, believe that you're going to get a... A, a, um, before you could even come close to getting a critical mass of people for revolutionary change to endorse revolutionary change as in confronting the state to the point of violence and then willing to take the consequences for that to get there before you can get there you need a critical mass of people who have rejected the authority of the state and what that what you have to get is you get ha you have to get enough people to realize for themselves, not because you yelled at that them, that the system won't accommodate their demands. And the way you do that is you present the system with an electoral outcome that it cannot metabolize. And when it can't metabolize that outcome, it rejects it, and that reduces legitimacy among the people you need to have legitimacy, re uh, legitimacy reduced for. And that means that they are more willing to listen to more confrontational strategies and enact those confrontational strategies because the first option is off the table in their mind because now they know it doesn't matter. Now they know. They saw it. They didn't get it yelled at them online. They saw it. They saw somebody that they wanted to win win and then they saw that win nullified. Now, right now, we're only at the we're we're seeing that happening. We're seeing places where you have one party Republican rule, enforcing one party Republican rule by denying elections to not even revolutionary Democrats, not even not even socialist Democrats. Uh, and then you're seeing the phenomenon of the uh, the capitalist Democratic Party not allowing the socialist Bernie Sanders from getting its nomination. Now that act has reduced the legitimacy of the Democratic Party for a lot of people who otherwise, and before this, had faith in it. 
And so if there is a purpose to electoralism, it is to try to create an electoral coalition that will advance candidates who just cannot be accepted in the current moment. And the bar for acceptance is going to get lower and lower as conditions get worse and worse because because uh, profit's going to be skinter. Uh, there's going to be even less room for any kind of public investment or outlay as, as the few remaining wealthy people loot the, 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 court, the, the, the stumbling uh, 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 near-death body of, of, the, of the state. And that means that they will just not accept electoral vote, uh, uh, outcomes. And only in an, an environment where that's happening, where people are seeing their, uh, their votes being cast out in front of them. And this election is going to do that no matter what. We're already seeing it. Or it, just in this year, the number of uh, the number of state primaries that have flouted basic basic uh, uh, standards for even like close to being a fair election, and yet having those results all certified and counted as though nothing had happened. Now, of course, it's 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 not like everyone is simultaneously having some moment of realization. It's a gradual process. People reach a a, a point of where, whereby they can no longer sustain the fiction to themselves anymore, and then they have to discard it. And that's a different, people have different, uh, like what that, um, what that limit is, is different for every person, but uh, if you have enough of those elections that are like that, it's gonna keep happening no matter what. Unevenly, but eventually, you're going to have something like a, uh, a, 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 foundational mass of people, a threshold of people who are ready to do something other than wait for the next election. Because they know it won't matter. They know it won't matter. In a way that you'll never convince them won't matter online. Uh. I have not read Martin Hagland. Sounds interesting. Best chain pizza. That's an interesting one because chain pizza is really generally some of the worst pizza you can get. Um, Papa John's is inedible fucking tire rubber. Uh, I have a childhood uh, appreciation, I will admit, for Pizza Hut. But you know what? Thinking about it, the best chain pizza is the super ultra thin crust from Domino's, which is legitimately good. So uh, I was mostly just thinking of Little Caesars and Papa John's, pretty disgusting. But the Detroit style classic pie that Pizza Hut puts out is decent. And uh, man, really, really, really like the thin crust, super extra thin crust Domino's with the, with the square pieces. Uh, but regionally, regional chains, I've never had Jets, even though I lived in Cincinnati. People say it's good. It looks... Uh, I did like Donato's, though, in Cincinnati, which is another uh, thin crust. But Pizza Hut, I mean, I think anyone who grew up in the Oregon Trail generation like I did has a, has a Proustian association with Pizza Hut because Pizza Hut would have things like Book It, which was a program where you got a little piece of paper and you would go home and you would write a book, read a book and when you uh, when you finish the book, you got a sticker, and then you had enough stickers, you'd get a free personal pan pizza at Pizza. It's also the place where you'd go after a softball game or something, a family birthday. It was like it was it was an event place because it had an, it had like this dark interior, 
that I, that was it simulated fanciness kind of even before things like Olive Garden existed it simulated this sort of like mid-century uh, supper club ambiance it was very dark they had red banquettes they had a salad bar uh, and for a long time they were the number one uh, one of the number one uh, one of the top American purchasers of kale because they used it to um, edge the salad bar not to eat but just to edge it yes the green lamps the pebbled, the pebbled brown plastic cups the Bigfoot. You go to play softball, you get you get done, they put the Bigfoot in front of you. They don't make the Bigfoot anymore, but that was a hell of a pie. Um, so yeah, Pizza Hut will always have, like, I mean, it's not a thing that I eat ever. Uh, because it's not the same. It's it, the, the, the delivery, it's mostly delivery, and like, I live in a city, it's like Pizza Hut, it's not going to be, it's not going to be the awesome classic building with the weird that weird temple roof. I don't even know what you call those. Um, it's just like a, a storefront. It's like, what am I, I'm not getting, I'm not getting the, I'm not getting that memory back. I'm not getting that sense of childhood nostalgia back just from the pizza. You know, even though you get a little Madeline action, you gotta get that, you gotta have the pebbled glass cup in your hand. Yeah, it's a roof. Fuck you. What do you call it? I would say a pagoda roof, that's it, thank you. And I would never go to a Pizza Hut Taco Bell combo. I have not talked to, uh, I think that maybe Bowman will win, or I mean Booker will win in Kentucky, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he loses, especially now that they're shutting all the polling places down and not, not giving people their absentee ballots. But I have a hard time imagining either of them her or McGrath beating uh, McConnell. But I would certainly rather have Booker be the candidate than McConnell because there is a there is a, a scenario, there is a not impossible scenario where there is this a nationwide anti-Republican wave. If things are bad enough and it's associated closely enough with the ruling party, then McConnell could actually lose. And of course, I would love that. I mean, I've hated Mitch McConnell more personally as, as a person than I've hated any American politician. Because when I was a little fucking civics nerd, uh, I thought campaign finance would be the answer to everything. And my, my senator, my hero, Russ Feingold, was one of the, chair, one of the chief uh, supporters of campaign finance. And the point man to oppose him was Mitch McConnell, the guy who would, say, who would willingly go out and say the thing that Republicans were generally too embarrassed to say, which was, uh, I believe that my corporate donors are exercising their free speech rights which is embarrassing to say. You just sound like a fucking lickspittle. But he was shameless, and as a result, the money flowed through him. Uh, so yeah, I remember hating him. He was like the evil, the evil old uh, Gargamel-looking motherfucker in the Senate trying to make sure that uh, the only people who had influence in government were zillionaires. I have, of course, uh, evolved beyond the, pa the, the, the moment of thinking that... Uh, the campaign finance is, is really meaningful at the moment, but it was an early fight that I had a rooting interest in, and I've hated McConnell ever since, and I was like a fucking teenager. 
So I would love to see him lose. I would love to see him eat shit, but um, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, the guy was hanging out with fucking Rand Paul when Rand Paul was just a teeming petri disk of coronavirus. Didn't even come down with it. Evil, evil is a is a bar- is a protective barrier at a certain level. You get enough, you spill enough blood, and it become, it starts coating you in a, in a protective shell. McConnell, uh, Kentucky definitely has a couple of the worst senators. McConnell is like definitely the worst senator, and then Rand Paul is top ten probably. Uh. Evil people are not happy. Evil people are suffering like everybody is. Uh, Evil people are able to more extravagantly indulge distraction and and uh, and solace from suffering temporary but you know the wicked flee when none pursueth I will say that, like, truly evil people are probably happier than the average person just because they can feel like they have some control over their lives. Because by definition, to be evil, you have to be able to do evil. And to do evil, you have to have power. So if you have power in life, that is its own narcotic that most of us can't even imagine how it feels. Like, that's probably the fentanyl of human emotions, is the power over other people. And of course, you know, it's, it's fleeting like everything. Uh, but in the moment, it must be incredibly seductive. Uh, uh, I thought that uh, Vice, the Madame McCabe movie, had its problems, uh, and that he's still fundamentally a liberal in certain ways in terms of his anal- analysis that makes it hard for him to, to basically to not get distracted. Like he, that movie, he's kind of like a big puppy, and he keeps like running off the track to like bark at a, a rabbit or something. Like unitary executive theory or like Fox News it's like these are all sort of subsidiary to a larger point that you're actually making but it's not it's not like narratively satisfying enough for him because it's too abstract but the scene in Vice that I think is brilliant the best scene in the movie and the movie and the scene that that most I think does the best job of actually uh, explaining people in power beyond their ideology which is secondary it's the scene, uh, it's in the 70s when, when uh, uh, Cheney is, uh, Nixon's, is in the Nixon White House and Rumsfeld is in the Nixon White House and they're standing in front of Nixon's office door uh, and Cheney goes, what's going on? And Rumsfeld said, he's in there with Kissinger. They're planning a bombing of Cambodia. And they show, they cut between a shot of like a, 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 an Asian like rice field like farmers and like some tree canopy and like you can hear like a B-52 or something and then back to this this door and Rumsfeld starts talking about how yeah, yeah you know they're gonna say a name they're gonna write thing down and some people on the other side of the world are gonna die and 
it gives a sense of the awe-infused seduction of that kind of power over human life. And it definitely reminds you that of course you would turn that into ritual. Of course you would ritualize that. Of course things like Bohemian Grove exist. Of course Epstein does what we all thought he did. Because you need the amount of concentration, mental concentration and will, an application of will it takes to get to that level. You essentially need a, a, a imaginative, something to pick up all that overflowed imaginative anima. And so that means that you're not just going to want to go in that room and, and blow up that fucking village. You're going to want to reenact it the way that serial killers do. And that's where all the ritual shit comes in. All the weird shit. And Sallow is a perfect example of it. Yeah, Sallow understands that. I am not setting off the fireworks. Thank you very much. I mean, I've, there apparently are pictures of cops, there's videos of cops setting off fireworks, so to some degree, yes. But all of them, no, absolutely not. What am I getting for dinner? I think I have a poke bowl. Poke bowl. Uh, Paul, Paul, you hear about this? Poke bowl. You got any gum? You got any gum? My favorite cryptid is the Mothman because the Mothman stands in for so much specific shit, it's fascinating. Like, that entire experience, the Point Pleasant phenomenon, late 60s, is uh, fascinating because the Mothman is only a small part of it. There's a whole... It was an absolute explosive growth in um, UFO sightings all across that region. But not just, like, lights in the sky shit, although there were lights in the sky almost every night for, like, a year. Until the fucking... <laughs> until the Point Pleasant... Uh, bridge collapsed and then they went away very weird uh but like encounters close encounters people like having a fucking driving on the highway having a, a, a spaceship drop in front of them guys come out take them into the ship and fly them around that kind of stuff um the men in black visiting people like weirdos in suits asking odd questions and sounding like robots uh, and then you have the fact that the whole thing was documented by this John, by John Keel, this guy John Keel in the book, uh, the book The Mothman Prophecies, who was most likely some sort of con artist or a fraudster himself. And it's, it's a perfect, exaggerated uh, reflection of the coming sense of vertiginous unreality that will, would come to like totally dominate our, 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 our modern space. Uh, in in, and the irony there is that it was occurring in like the crucible of like the, the very the very 
the the the, the tail end of the dot the, the 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 high modernist moment, right? Like the moment of the the, the, the when when uh, when uh, positivism when when like social positivism had reached its most hegemonic faith and ability to uh, to influence reality, uh, and at the same time you're having a phenomenon occurring uh, in this town uh, where if you just read the Keel book. You would have no idea. You could not, especially in a time when there was no internet and everyone basically believed what they read in the papers. How could you make sense of it? And I've always thought that you could do something really interesting creatively with Mothman, uh, but it would have to hinge on you never finding out who the Mothman is, and it, you know, and and, and presenting in the thing itself different realities without picking between them. Like I mean, maybe it was an MK Ultra thing. Maybe they dosed the town's water supply. And that's what's so terrifyingly depressing and awful about the Mothman Prophecy movie that got made, uh, which is just like an X Files moody ripoff with Richard Gere as John Keel playing him as just absolutely dour dork boring as hell, tries to be scary, which is absolutely the wrong play. Rothman movie is a comedy above all else. Uh, yes, I have watched Falling Down, and I think Falling Down is a really good movie. Uh, one of Schumacher's better films. And I saw some people today taking the opportunity to say that uh, that it's bad because the protagonist is relatable in any way, which it does make me feel like we've lost an ability to appreciate aesthetics due to the politicization of everyday life. But it's because we've politi politicized politics in the worst way. We've politicized politics at the level of symbolic action and not real action. And of course that's because we lack real political action. And we create a symbolic order to stand in for it. That's bad. And it is our challenge to try to get back to a real life where you have real political action and not symbolic representation of that action online. But what the, the so we have depoliticized real lives but hyperpoliticized symbolic lives, which means we invest a lot of political thought into our entertainment, a level I believe we didn't used to do. And it's not because we're better people or more woke, it's because we're more anxious about our inability to affect the world around us and we want to make up for that anxiety by applying some sort of political lens to art and convincing ourselves that by seeing things in films and in television that reaffirm our values that we're getting anywhere. You're not getting anywhere. You're, uh, you're on the, the hell treadmill. Uh, but you want to feel like you're getting somewhere and so you invest politics into, into entertainment and that means that you're not... Because you can never... You can't pay attention to everything in a movie, you know? You have to pick a, a lens to watch a movie through, a heuristic. And a political heuristic is about the most creatively and artistically uh, deadening and unrewarding heuristics you can use to look at art. You can look at art politically, and you should at some point and in some way, but as the, as the governing heuristic to, to look at a piece of art through, it's the worst way to do it. Because... Everything that actually makes up film, everything that actually makes up the art form, cinematography, editing, sound design, um, act, uh, performances, 
sheen, as Lex G would call it, none of that, ref none of that really is the political content, you know? So you end up pushing this all, like, get this shit out of my way. And you end up, what you end up looking for is, because most movies have, because they're not political documents, their politics are relatively threadbare and easy to find, and, um, and not supported by much. There's not much art to them. So you miss all the actual art in a piece of art to pull out these, like, uh, to pull the gnat shit out of pepper, and then to declare the, the, the work of art good or bad, depending on what those politics are. You can do that, but it is an unrewarding way to do it. And that's why people who do that have such hysterically over-determined and emotionally involved opinions on this shit. So there are people walking around who say that the Falling Down is a bad movie because it makes you identify with the protagonist. Creating a relatable protagonist that the audience is invested in is one of the hardest things you can do. Most movies can't even do it. Falling Down pulls it off masterfully. That makes it a good movie. The only argument that is bad is, is, is V-chip-ass shit about how people are going to see it and then carry it out, which we never had a conversation about how that is now the new left-wing model for dealing with artistic representation after, it, after denying it for years under free speech arguments. See, I didn't say cinematography. See, this person is trying to catch me by saying, I said cinematography is not related to politics. Obviously not. It's in everything. I am saying it is not first and for. It, it is a reflection. If you're looking at a film politically, most people are not looking at it through the lens of the cinematography and then figuring out what the politics is from that. They're looking at themes and dialogue. If you want to try to say I'm wrong about that, you can, but... I don't say that I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, that you can depoliticize aesthetics. Obviously you can't. But that's not how people are engaging with them. They're ignoring the aesthetics. How many, how many reviews of movies do you see anymore that talk about the aesthetic elements of film? They talk about the themes and the characters almost exclusively. And in moral terms. Because they politicized, they, they have a politicized heuristic. The cinematography is still telling a political story, but they aren't even getting that far into it. I would like some hanging plants. It's nice out here, but yeah, a few plants would be nice too. I might, I might get some hangers. I don't really have a green thumb. The problem is it doesn't really get dark back here, so I don't know. I would need something that doesn't require a lot of light. Skyline is not bad. I know I probably just destroyed my credibility with half the audience there, but Skyline, it looks bad. And there's a reason they dumped half a pound of uh, cheese on top. It's to disguise the diarrhea-looking fucking cheese under, uh, chili underneath it. But it's actually pretty good. And more importantly than pretty good, it's unique. It's really hard to get anywhere else. And it's, it's interesting. And it's worth trying. Oh, is somebody trying to say who we are in the 
the Soviet thing. Amber's definitely Stalin, and she would agree. Beyond that, I don't know. What's the most dudes rock movie ever made? That's actually a good question. I don't know if I could say most. I haven't seen enough movies, probably. But, uh, um, like, of movies I can think of, a movie that really gets the vibe, Magic Mike XXL. Magic Mike XXL is dudes rock the movie. Uh, Magic Mike is an okay movie. It's very well shot, uh, and all the dance scenes are great, but uh, it's got some real problems. Mainly that it stars as the love interest this uh, girl, Alex Horn, I think her name was, who was like the the daughter of some studio executive. She also had like a five season, five episode arc on The Office, and and it was just perfect studio nepotism. And she was such a zero. And the way you know that she was truly talentless is that even with her dad being a studio executive, she never got any other work. And so she was just, and Alex Pettifer played her brother, and they're just zero charisma losers. And it also has this like weird moralistic thing about like drug use. The sequel, which technically was not directed by Steven Soderbergh, although apparently he did all the cinematography, uh, is it removes everything bad and clunky about the first one. All the plot, it removes plot. It removes romant, like romantic uh, uh, drang, and it is a story of a. So the guy, so it starts. Magic Mark ends. Magic Mark. Magic Mike ends with Channing Tatum. He's like, I think I gotta be serious. I'm gonna go make wood. And it starts. He's broken up with the awful girl. Thank God. And he's got his company. He's actually doing it. He's doing the thing that he always said he would in the first movie. He's making furniture. Uh, and but he still loves the rumba. He loves the dance. And there's a great scene where he's like drilling a table and he hears Pony and he just starts dancing. It's great. Uh, but he gets he gets contacted by the old guys and it's like, hey, we're going to this thing. You want to come to this stripper convention? And he's like, sure. And there are so many moments in this movie where they could have included bullshit plot complications and drama. Like, he has this company. Maybe the company's not sewing so good, and they needs to, he needs money, and there's a cash prize that they have to win at the stripper convention. And maybe when they get to the stripper convention, they're evil strippers who they have to beat. Uh, nope, it's just, let's go to the convention. Doesn't even show if they won or lost. Uh, and although maybe they show if they won, but literally I don't remember because it was that unimportant. And then the whole movie itself is just guys being dudes in the best way. There's a whole scene where uh, it's it's one of the few movies uh, that's uh, like about the female gaze, in that there are extended sequences where men are just wildly objectified by women and they love it because they want to make the women happy. And uh, the stakes are non-existent, which is dude rock requirement because you have to be centered and you can't have outsized uh, investment in the world around you. You gotta be able to just abide. Uh, and then my favorite thing is so, this is my absolute favorite thing about this movie. So Channing Tatum hooks up with his old dancing partners and there's one guy there who gives him the business. He's like looking at him kind of like, mm, and the camera like follows him kind of giving him the eye. And it's established, oh, this guy's got a problem with Channing Tatum. And that's exactly the kind of thing they set up so that, like, right before the big finale, 
they get betrayed by him, you know? Nope. One scene later, after he's been frosty to Channing Tatum and shown, you know, not just for our benefit, but Channing Tatum's noticed too. He comes up to him and he goes, hey, buddy, you okay? You seem like you got a problem. And he says, I'm mad at you because you left when we were struggling. And he's like, I'm sorry, man, but you knew I wanted to do the stuff with the furniture. Uh, I love you guys. And he's like, I love you too. Squashed. Done. Never comes back. Relationship's good. It's men who are, who are secure in their, their sexuality, their masculinity, uh, their, their uh, worth as people. And they operate from, from like a pure purity of t- intention. Beautiful. It's the dudes. Th- I'm glad someone asked that. It is the most dudes rock movie I'm aware of. Magic Mike XXL. Dudes rock is also uh, a Big Lebowski is kind of dudes rock, uh, although mm, Walter doesn't really rock. He's a little too. Uh, he's he's a little he's not, he's a little too high strung. Somebody says, Magic Mike XXL is a divorced dad movie? I don't... I wouldn't say that. Does Mike Davis hate you guys? I sure hope not. I respect him a great deal. I think he's very good. He's written... He's done very well. His book, uh, Prisoners of the American Dream, is one of the most prescient pieces of uh, social literature. He absolutely nails where we would be now. Then. So I don't know why you asked that. I hope he hasn't been saying bad things about us. I hate it. I, I'm, I'm bummed out enough that Rick Perlstein doesn't like us. But we might be able to talk to him for the new book, so that would be cool. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. It's out in uh, advanced copies. I think I'm going to get one, so I'm going to start it soon. And I am, ooh, I am doing the Birdman hand for that. And I love the fact it's 900 pages, and it's about the fucking Carter years. Just the least culturally examined uh, presidential era, and uh, I haven't—I didn't get to watch Trump's speech, which I'm a little bummed about. I saw some of the highlights. I might watch the whole thing. Him getting cheered to, for drinking the water was really a, a truly mind-breaking experience because that's one of those moments where you actually break away some of the levels of acceptance that you've done to sort of accommodate reality and you strip at the bark and you just see a room full of people risking death to, to, to give a round of applause to an old man for successfully drinking a glass of water with one hand. Holy fuck. They were, they were, they were proud of him for drinking they thought that they had owned the left and the fake news media by him drinking from a glass of water they had a chyron on fox news 
that I swear to God, describing his conversation, his explanation for why he did that, was uh, Trump explains, didn't he, uh, two-handed, uh, held glass with two hands to avoid tie getting wet. But here's the thing, Donald, everybody who's drinking doesn't want that, nobody wants their tie to get wet if they're wearing a tie. Nobody wants their drink to go into their, their chest. That's never the intention of anyone who's going for a drink. You're not unique in that. The thing is, most people can do it one-handed. Him going, no, no, no. I wanted to make sure there was no water on my tie. It's a silk, silk tie. I didn't, so I had to, it's like, so I had to use the other hand. It's like, well, I didn't have to use the other hand. Nor did most people. Nor did most people who aren't in, in, in a home. But that's the kind of thing. Like, I can't, I don't think he's happy talking about why. I don't think that he's talking, reassuring everybody for 20 minutes about the ramp and how slippery it was. I don't think he feels cool. I don't think he feels like he's owning anybody. I think he feels like, why do I have to explain? Why don't people believe that, I, that it was slippery? Come on, everyone gets mad. I understand that dunking on the Cheeto is passe, but I mean, it is... I don't want to deny what's right in front of my face just to maintain some sort of uh, ideological purity. I mean, I'm confident enough in my beliefs that I can say that Trump is still pretty funny and that he is also hilariously absurd and that the motherfucker can't drink with one hand and that that's funny to me. I'm sorry. I'm not going to stop noticing the world around me just because it's not the material conditions that formatted everything. I'm going to have a look around. It's an aesthetic enjoyment. Same as looking at a nice field of sunflowers. Will any component of the liberal order side with verifiable truth? Thing is, there is no nothing can institute. No, there, there is no verifiable truth because it can no longer be enforced. We have a situation where any news that comes up, given the way that it's presented and by whom it's presented, will be disbelieved by half of the people, and that has literally killed hundreds. Of, it's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people in this country. The fact, the fact of that, is going to literally kill hundreds of thousands of people in this country, or contribute to their deaths anyway, because, like. If people had really believed what the media was telling them about coronavirus when they need, when it when it mattered, they would not have acted the way they did. They acted the way they did because they didn't believe it. And the thing is, is that there was no political reason. There was no rational reason for them to disbelieve it, right? Like, I mean, unless you unless you've accepted the idea that you're under like hostile occupation, if you accept that like you live in a social order that has relatively functional institutions. When everything tells you, every news channel uh, tells you, every doctor tells you, all these institutions tell you that this is a real virus, because like that's not a political question, whether or not people die from a virus, right? You'd process that as, okay, there's a virus. And we can tell that because other countries, that's what happened. In a lot of other countries, that's what they said. It's like, oh, virus? Okay. Half of our people said, oh, virus? No. And that's going to be true no matter what. Nothing can change that. In the, sh in the near term, anyway. In the current moment, that cannot change. 
So there's no reasserting a, a, a top-down uh, narrative agreed-upon truth that can be assured to do anything else than ensure half people won't believe it, depending on where it comes from. So it's done. That's that's over. We, we, we will never be operating from the same playbook again. And that is terrifying because it, it made it almost impossible to deal with COVID and it will make it impossible to deal with climate change. But like I said, there's a flip side that's positive to that because yes, we're losing a, a common understanding. We're losing common faith in institutions, but that includes the political process. And as I said, critical alienation from the electoral process is necessary to establish a new uh, critical mass of activists who are willing to challenge capital directly. I would like to stream Crusader Kings, yes. Uh, I, will, I will agree with someone who's, who pointed out that a lot of people didn't believe in COVID because they couldn't afford to, right? Their livelihood had depended on it, and there was no alternative, and they never developed one. And that's why I said we eventually gave up on the, on the quarantine because we were like, fuck it. Uh, but I do think that, that it was a self-reinforcing cycle where one of the things that made it impossible to operate to act quickly is you couldn't just tell people, stay home and wear a mask. You couldn't just say that and hit a button and have them take you seriously. Now, sure, the, our critical capacity to respond was minimal, but even that was compromised further by this lack of an agreed-upon uh, reality. answer a question one more question and then I'm gonna sidle off cowboys and girls old cow folks Uh, somebody asked to comment on class reductionists uh, undermining or uh, minimizing Black Lives Matter. Uh, I will leave on this note. I'll drop the mic here and just say I don't think class reduction is, is, is a thing. And I don't mean that in the sense of like classifying people. Like, oh, wouldn't you say somebody who believed X, Y, and Z was a... I am saying that 
since no one self-identifies as one, it's purely a term of, uh, of, it's a term of abuse. It's a term used to pre-sort someone, the same way like SJW is, pre-sort someone into a, a range of uh, beliefs that aren't theirs, they're yours. You get to fill that term with what you want it to mean, and then you apply it to somebody else. And then they have to like go through the fucking mesh of trying to cut through your imposed idea of what they believe on what they actually believe. I saw somebody uh, yesterday. Um, they were saying like, oh, these class reductionists, you know, they, they, they act like there's no material impact from racism. Trust me, there is. It's like, I know plenty of people who get called class reductionists, not one of whom would believe that. In fact, they would believe the opposite. They would say that's what, it's that's so true and it's so central that that's what you should focus on. And so they have you. They, there's a difference of tactics and strategy, and analysis, that is just being ignored. No, no, no. We're assuming my conditions first. We're assuming my uh, my description of these things first, and then you get to work from that. I mean, you can try that, and you know, in group it works because you're sorting people by whether or not you're they're going to be they're going to be cast away because if you get the class reductionist mark on you just threatening someone to call someone that inside a group works because they don't want to get called that because it has impact to them problem people who are outside they don't give a shit if you call them it because they they say i don't care or they don't even know what a fuck is supposed to mean it's it's a it's a hex that doesn't have any effect on people who aren't already uh in the coven so if you're using that word to me, I just think, wait, I, how can I even talk about this because you've already loaded the gun and put it on the table? Like, you have to talk about, like, a specific issue and a specific approach to it. So, yeah. But, see, see, some people are calling themselves flash reduction. That's fine, but... Like I said, this guy who was explaining what class reductionism was in a YouTube video, by the way, that was supposed to be explanatory for like, hey, are you a leftist? Well, let me explain some things for you by like debating shit. And he goes, oh, class reductionism. They don't think that there's a material basis uh, that racism has a material reflection. That's wildly wrong. But it's own. But here's the thing. He doesn't think it's wrong because he gets to define the terms. But she's that mean. You can't, do, you can't assume that. For a neutral audience, you can't assume that. And you should always assume a neutral audience if you want to be persuasive. All right. I hope some of that made sense. Talk to you guys soon.